Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Neil Fox. Neil, how are you uh, doing in the uh, lockdown situation? Really enjoying it, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds mean and cruel, um, and there is a kind of a, a big tinge of guilt at saying that, uh, knowing the situation that so many people are in, but it's been really positive for me. I've had a very nice time to reflect and think and write and done lots of writing and yeah just kind of get my mental house in order so feel very grateful for this kind of moment to stop and obviously to have a job that allows me to do that so yeah while I do empathize and sympathize with so many people around the world it is it's actually been a really useful period of time what about you yeah I mean it's a similar thing and 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 sort of being self-reflexive about our positions is kind of an interesting thing now because it's like the two luxuries are a permanent job and a bit of space. If you've got those two things, you're kind of you're kind of set up, and there's nothing really to complain about. Which is why I kind of haven't, you know what I mean? It's just a case of dealing of with what our jobs are, which you know, in the grand scheme of things, are not by any stretch of the imagination dangerous jobs or anything like that. We're not on the front line. I mean, you know, in our in in academia, it's got its own problems, which we'll probably mention at certain points, but. Yeah, just that that idea of 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 being sanguine about my own position and situation, and then acknowledging at, at at times I think when I've felt like you know I've had ups and down days where I feel like oh god you know like an afternoon where I was thinking to myself I, I just can't do anything and and sort of burying myself in bed or just going to watch a movie just to kind of get away from those those feelings and thoughts and they they kind of happen but but just sort of yeah carrying on and and doing doing what I'm doing I'm, and yeah a bit like you trying to do some writing trying to think about other projects thinking a lot about what next semester might look like in terms of teaching that those are interesting and important questions that I think are going to come to the fore in the next few weeks but mainly thinking this week about uh, this episode yeah episode 100 yeah for sure and it's uh, and 5 years of course we're talking about so Indeed. it's like it's and and you know i mean as listeners will see in the structure of this episode and the content um there's a little bit of self-aggrandizement going on here but i think we've kind of uh, you know, we've, we're earning that. And even if people think we haven't tough, we're going to do it anyway and <laughs> just sort of enjoy the moment. Because I think, you know, without a doubt, just sort of framing the episode, it's the Cinematologist podcast has definitely become central to my life in an academic sense, but also just in a sort of cultural sense and in a friendship sense with you. It sort of, it spans across everything. And, and you know, I can't really put a, I can't put a level of significance on that in an adequate way, I don't think. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something I'm very proud of. And yeah, in terms of the milestones, but also just in terms of the the experience and and how it's kind of grown and, and, and evolved. And yeah, just been a really, really rewarding experience from day one, really, which is really kind of amazing considering the last, you know, everything that's happened in the last five years. So feeling very very grateful and I think it is important to to kind of to reflect on that in a positive sense and it was so nice to ask sort of people and friends of the podcast to you know if they wanted to contribute and to to get such a kind of array of responses and and to know how people engage with the podcast in a 
in a really intimate way rather than just the odd tweet or the odd email you know it was a really really lovely kind of affirmation of of everything we've been doing and hopefully people will enjoy those contributions as we get to them yeah absolutely and um I think just to let people know that we we did sort of ask various contributors and and the Patreon subscribers if they did want to like a re- record a little segment and ask us a question that we can talk to with regards to anything really. I mean, it, it can be about the podcast in its in the broadest sense, but also individual films. We were quite open to anything. I mean, obviously with the 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 COVID situation, we had other plans in mind, but they they were they were sort of shelved and. You know, we wanted to do something that maybe was a little bit different to just watching a film. I mean, we could have picked something that we both really, really loved and wanted to talk about. But I think we wanted also to have that opportunity to to have a bit of a dialogue with our listeners. And, you know, anybody who wanted to take us up on that in their own personal situations of being locked down you know it was a it was a nice thing to do and I'm glad that we got the uh, the responses that we did and some interesting topics are going to come up I think yeah no I think it's going to be a really fascinating uh, episode in terms of reflection but also kind of thinking forward and thinking about what's next for us and for film I think in a, in a, in a much broader sense so should hopefully be a nice balance of the reflective and the yeah, projective, if that's a word, um, which uh, I'm going to pretend it is. <laughs> okay, no, absolutely, it definitely is, it definitely is. Um, so who are we going to hear first, Neil? Well, first up, uh, we're going to hear from Ellen Cheshire, who, as she mentions in her contribution, was a, a guest on uh, the episode of the, for the piano that was uh, hosted down in Falmouth. And uh, yeah, the questions that she asked will kind of set us off nicely in terms of, uh, yeah, getting getting this kind of reflective conversation underway. So this is uh, Ellen Cheshire's contribution. Dario and Neil, this is Ellen Cheshire wishing you a very happy 100th anniversary. Um, I had the great pleasure of spending an evening in Falmouth at the Poly with Neil in uh, September 2018 now, um, where we screened the piano to a group of incoming students um, and then had a fascinating discussion with them. Um, And of course, revealing that for many most, let's say all of them, they weren't even alive when the film came out. So I felt very old, um, but learnt so much from them um, as the discussion continued. So that's what's great about The Cinematologists, um, is that, you know, despite now watching films and writing about films for mm, 20, 30 years, um, I'm still learning. And that's what's so great about you two guys. Uh, keeping it in the family, you can also hear my mum asking a question when uh, Dario visited Chichester University with the film Her. Uh, so I have spread the love um, of cinematologists across my family. But if I had to pick one episode that I do point people to, 
Uh, perversely, it's one of your bonus specials back in 2017, November, when you interviewed um, Alex Barrett about his film London Symphony. Um, it's a really fascinating insight into um, making um, the film, which is uh, a silent city symphony in the style of those from the 20s, but also about crowdfunding um, and how difficult and time-consuming that is. Uh, so that's the one I would kind of point people to if they haven't checked that one out. But I do have a question that I've been wanting to ask you ever since I started listening back <clears throat> all those years ago. You get the title of the Cinematologists and who designed your fabulous logo. So again, wishing you both um, a happy birthday and I look forward to hearing many more Cinematologists in the future. Bye. Thanks very much to Ellen for her contribution and continued support of the podcast and yeah in response to those questions particularly the one about where the name comes from you you prepped a little something a little did a little bit of research for us to uh, kind of really kind of clarify where the name comes from because it's a it's a question that we get asked a lot I think and it's a little known area of yeah kind of film studies well you suggested it and I think probably if I'm right in thinking that you suggested it just in terms of it being kind of like aesthetically or linguistically quite interesting as a name is that right Partly, yeah, but it did have it did have a kind of connotation that I was interested in. Well, two yeah. things. One was because um, it came out of my study of uh, when I did, was doing my doctorate and kind of looking at the history of film studies and the film and film education and yeah. realizing that it was quite a kind of controversial yeah. name, which you know, kind of the the rebel in me liked kind of bringing <laughs> something from the past that had been almost discredited and kind of trying to resurrect it. And the other reason was that the part of it, which was this kind of scientific approach to film, interest interested me in a positive sense, in the sense of like not accepting that science is a fixed thing, you know, like I think it's often thought of as once it's in a scientific mode, that's it. Whereas for me, science is something which is a constant of evolution based on what what new knowledge is brought to the to the fore. Yeah, so that fits in nicely to to what I was going to say. So, in 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 film studies history, there was this Society of Cinematologists, which was founded in 1959 by a guy called Robert Gessner, uh, NYU, and um, sort of various luminaries in film studies, which I don't think was really um, fully formed as a discipline even at that time. It, Certainly within the context of a university education, it wasn't. And it had people like Siegfried Krakur was an early member and, you know, sort of, again, leading luminary and sort of formalising the idea of film studies. And they, they had this society and, and built the journal around it, um, the Journal of the Society of, of Cinematologists. And as you say, it was controversial because it was an, this attempt to bring film studies into a scientific discipline probably as much to give these academics credibility as much as uh, as much as anything else but then in the late 60s as the the humanities became more to the fore again as an accepted discipline it seemed obviously film studies kind of fits in with that and then when Gessner died in 69 um, the council of the society voted to change the name to the society of uh, cinema studies and then and that remained the same all the way through the kind of 80s and 90s and then in 2002 the name changed to SCMS which is the Society of Cinema and Media Studies which of course many of our listeners will be familiar with so again I think it's what's interesting that you said there about the sort of scientific element of it that maybe there is a correlation there that 
maybe we didn't sort of deliberately thinking about in terms of the idea of where cinema is now in the digital age. Is it the same as it was? Is it now, is it recognised that cinema is, is kind of like as a definition in flux as much as it ever has been? And and again, that was kind of Gessner's intent, I think, to sort of define cinema. But for for me, and I think for both of us, this this is a sort of project without an end, isn't it? You know, you can't ever get to the point where you say this is cinema and sort of engaging with that in this era where we're fighting for that that status and to just just sort of talk about the importance of cinema still it, you know it kind of fits in with that a little bit i think yeah no totally it was yeah kind of largely instinctual in terms of what we actually thought the podcast was going to do because we didn't really know at the mm. time but it was it was we definitely felt like that there was there was a kind of value in it which was just felt and we definitely align with kind of i guess taking it seriously in terms of it's consideration and what it is and not ever not ever thinking we're trying to fix it or define it but to to just kind of constantly kind of extrapolate and kind of build layers of our understanding of it um which i think is that's definitely borne out you know the amount of new cinema and different cinema that we've encountered in the last five years and how constantly re-centered and re-understood what our own position to cinema is in terms of how we think about it and also how we experience it, I think is has it just shifted so dramatically for me in the last in the last five years. It's it's been amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And she also asked there who designed the logo, and that is a uh, Philida uh, Philly Blumel, who uh, is a lecturer at Falmouth and a really fantastic uh, illustrator and designer. And yeah, she was an MA student, and at the time when we started the podcast, and she worked in a, in a in the coffee shop down the road from me in Falmouth, which was uh, Provadore, which was such a lovely, uh, one of the things I most miss about not living in Falmouth. And yeah. uh, we just got chatting and I sort of, you know, looked at some of her stuff at an exhibition and thought, I think she, there was something about the the kind of the Soviet modernist way that she was kind of approaching her illustration and, and design that I thought, mm. and uh, that was the sort of brief I gave, kind of, you know, think Eisenstein, think Vertov, think kind of 1920s modernism. and yeah. And that's what she came up with, and it was just like, yeah, that that feels good. And it, again, like the name, it's done a lot of good work for us over the last few years. So we're very grateful to Philly for uh, for her contribution. Yeah, it's it, it's actually a big part of it. I think a big part of the show that that recognizable logo that we've that we've got. And it's what's great is she gave us so many files with different versions and sizes, and we've able been able to sort of manipulate it to to each. Um, situation we needed it so it works on the on the sort of big desktop and it works on Twitter and all that kind of thing so it's yeah great and really really grateful for that yeah and it was nice to send her uh, the um, the clipping from the Observer recently where yeah. they uh, they uh, they printed a little a uh, little version of her logo she was yeah. very pleased about that so yeah that was nice, nice. great so in the uh, in the conversation there, Ellen mentioned one of her favourite episodes is the bonus episode with uh-huh. uh, Alex Barrett, uh, which was uh, really nice to 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 hear, um, you know, and, and just realise how deep some of our listeners go with the listening. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in terms of how people engage and to know that some people literally listen to everything and and find sort of their favourite moments in in th- in places that you would least expect is really really rewarding. Um, but uh, we, we thought it'd be a nice now to lead into our contribution from Andrew Pierce from The Curb, uh, all the way over in Australia, who talks a little bit about those kind of extra features for the Patreon subscribers. So I guess we'll head to him now. 
Hello, Dario and Neil. It is Andrew here calling all the way from Australia, sending huge congratulations to you both on your 100th episode. Uh, and look, I've been a huge fan and champion of The Cinematologist for a while, and I, I need to say that this is one of the most essential podcasts out there, and I don't say that lightly, uh, because every time an episode appears, I just have to devour it straight away. I absolutely love the deep consideration that is given to every single discussion, ensuring that the listener is part of the conversation rather than being spoken to. It's a difficult balance to get, and I think you both have really managed that perfectly. I'm always in awe of the immense breadth of uh, understanding of film history and the place that cinema has in the world today that comes from the discussions on The Cinematologist. It also is a valuable celebration of how important the voice of a filmmaker is. And there is such a deep consideration and understanding from you both and the, the guests that you have on the show who understand the perspective of a director, of a writer, of an actor, and the place that that particular film has in their society and the society at large. It's not an easy thing to grapple and deal with, but the cinematologist manages to do that on a tangible and easy-to-approach level. Uh, For me, having both of your voices and the many other guests on your show to listen to. And that has taught me a lot on how to talk about and engage with film and has set a benchmark for me as a critic for what and for what I want to attain as a writer and somebody talking about and discussing film. The inclusivity of The Cinematologist is wonderful. I, I cannot thank you both enough. I'll always be thankful that you took the time to have watched and record an episode on Sweet Country and dedicate the time continually to discussing and exploring internet national cinema at large. I know how hard it can be trapped in a bubble and only looking in your own backyard or even just at American cinema as being the only cinema or film that you actually engage with. And it means a lot to have you both and your guests on the show discussing and exploring international cinema that's not just from the home country. It shows that there is a world of cinema out there that is worthwhile exploring and discussing that isn't just what we're familiar with and comfortable with. And for me, I have a long list of of filmmakers and films that has been discussed on The Cinematologist that I have either tracked down or I need to track down and uh, find out about and, and follow up on because there is so much great film and cinema out there that isn't getting discussed on a wide, large scale. And we need voices like you both and the guests you have on the show talking about these smaller films that don't get a wider platform. It means so much. Uh, and given the state of the world at the moment, uh, I also want to touch on based on that, you know, as a Patreon supporter, and I'm really glad to get those Patreon newsletters in. It's it's really, really lovely and touching to be able to see how you both engage with film, what you've been doing over the past month. Uh, it feels like a conversation with us and you're reaching out to us and extending warm regards to us. It's it's genuinely, genuinely touching. I love it a lot. I've learned so much from the cinematologist. Particularly, I love the episodes on film philosophy and I've listened to them a couple of times, taking notes and having learned a lot from them. And I there are more than a few episodes which I've listened to multiple times because it feels like a great lecture or, or lesson in film and a journey that I, I really enjoy going on. And 
you feel like we're going on a journey with you and learning about films and there's discoveries and discussions that take place that is so welcome and eye-opening that I just love it a lot. Uh, so often it feels like the world of film criticism feels like a competition, like other opinions or views are more important or more correct in inverted commas than others. But there's something welcome about the cinematologist where it feels like anyone can be a critic and everyone's views are valued. And that is what I love about this show. And again, so I want to say again, congratulations to you both on a hundred episodes of great and valuable film discussions. And I want to leave with one question, which is as people who talk about cinema and film, I'm curious for you both, Dario and Neil, what was the critic or the person who talked about film that encouraged you on this path of, of exploring this side of film discussion? Where did you kick off your journey as a critic or as a person who is interested in film history or the nature of film discussion. I'm curious about that. Uh, once again, thank you so much, both of you, for the fantastic show. I love it a lot. Uh, I've rambled on a long time, so please feel free to edit this down. But from Australia, uh, I want you both to know how much I admire the show and I really value every episode that you put out. Congratulations, and I look forward to the next 100. Thank you, Andrew, a lovely contribution. And thank you for introducing us to Sweet Country, which was a fabulous uh, experience. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a lot of stuff there in terms of the, the the extra bonus content, which obviously only a select handful of people might listen to or, or read. But I think that we both feel like that extra content has brought a real value to the podcast in terms of just our practice and our reflection. And you made some nice points about the the newsletter, which is our monthly kind of communication with our, our Patreon subscribers. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, the newsletter just sort of does serve, for me anyway, a kind of... In, in some ways, the recommendations part is a way for me to kind of create this cultural and artistic footprint that the stuff that's influencing me, the stuff that is... Um, important to me in this you know mad haze of information and stuff that you have to kind of wade through i mean you're probably going to speak more to the kind of curatorial function i think that's really important but just the ability to be able to say yeah this is what i'm watching this is what i'm listening to this is what i'm reading and to find connections between those things is really is really been important and it's you know, I can, sometimes I can be a bit, a little bit random with that. You know, I need to watch this. I need to watch that. And we often, I, I often have this conversation at home. It's like, you know, there's so much out there, but you end up scrolling through stuff, or what shall I read next? And it, it all seems to, it all, all seems to be a bit nebulous at times. And I think that that having the the recommendations part is really important in kind of finding a way through that. It definitely has helped. But then in in terms of the the sort of writing part, the, there's the the idea of of having a space where you can you can write something and and reflect on on areas that are unbounded by a any particular context of what's going on right now so you can write about something in your own life you can write about something that's going on in culture and society but also the fact that it is going to an audience but it's not going to just on you know it's just not going to everyone so there's a sort of selected audience who are they're reading that and 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 having that ability to be able to sort of maybe say things and and expand your expand your arguments in ways that you probably might not do or 
or it allows us, I suppose what I'm saying is it allows a little bit of, of leeway in terms of something that you, you would, you could put out there in, 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 in a framework that is not maybe complete, that you need it to be more complete if it went out, say, in a, in a journal article or just, just to, to the wider public online. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a specific space, isn't it? Yeah, which is, which kind of does a lot of different things at once, which I think has been really rewarding. There is the curatorial aspect of it. And I guess it's kind of, yeah, it, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there where it's not, you're not just throwing it out. You know, you're sharing things that are meaningful to you, knowing that people are going to read read that and whether they take stuff off is not really the point. It's, you know, and it's nice when people sort of do get back to you and say, check this out and it was great or read this piece and it was great. But it is more about, yeah, kind of not just holding that stuff in and finding a, a place to to kind of reflect. I love the fact that it's monthly or bi-monthly in terms of when we write our main communication before the recommendations, which is a reflection. And it's there's something nice about having that deadline and that that focus. And my a lot of my focus around the month is what's happening in my life that I want to reflect on at the end, you know, making notes and, and what what has felt really significant in terms of how I felt or what I've seen in the world or culture or at work that, that feels like something I want to unpack and I want to share in that space, which, like you say, is a good space where you know there's going to be an active readership, but it doesn't require the same level of research or kind of fear of putting it out in terms of judgment that a journal article or even a magazine article or a review might. So it's like everything on the podcast, really. It took a, it took a while to to understand what it was for us, mm. you know, like a newsletter is a newsletter, but we've kind of approached it the way we've approached the podcast, which is what can it be? What do we want it to be? And it feels such a rewarding part of the month now in terms of writing and reflecting. Yeah. Um, I feel really appreciative that that it has an audience yeah. and that, that, that people respond to it. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? It's because whenever we sort of float something, there's always in the back of our minds have we got time to do this? Is this just going to be another chore? And that's the thing we've, I think, with the podcast, we've we've kind of had to guard against because there's been moments, I think, maybe where we've, we've, we've tried to put too many on. And again, it's interesting because this is the 100th episode. I'm always kind of thinking, oh, you know, there's people who put two podcasts out a week and there's us with our two podcasts a month. And, and you know, is it really worth celebrating 100 episodes because there's so many more out there? But in a sense, I think it's that, the way that it fits into our lives is very significant, I think, and therefore that's yeah. why. I, and and the way that we do it, in terms of the, the the depth of preparation and planning, and then the depth of care that we try to take with the edit, and and then the research that goes into the the content and and what have you. It does take. It's we aren't we hope hopefully people know we aren't just sort of sitting down and winging it any anymore. Maybe we did that a little bit at the beginning, but it's definitely not the case anymore. Yeah, I think I, I think winging it is is probably too negative. I think in terms of how we yeah. approached it, I, d I do think we were exploratory and instinctual, and were led by our gut and our hearts of like you know what what are we what are we interested in, and then and then being reflective on it, and you know I think that served us well. And there, there have been moments where we've kind of questioned the the identity of it or questioned you know what what it is and and how we do it and stuff. But I think that's been really really productive in terms of getting us where we are which is where it does sit at the center of our of our lives as a creative enterprise mm. 
but we're much more comfortable with knowing knowing why we're dedicating so much time you know and why it's important to take that time every month to do all those different things episodes bonuses newsletters and things like that you know we i think just we understand it more from doing it so much so that's why again it feels nice to to stop and reflect because i think it gives us another chance to do that um and realize that you know that that people have come with us that whole way which has been really nice yeah no absolutely um and then andrew also sort of talked about this idea maybe of of alluding to it this idea of film criticism as becoming kind of a competition you know and a, a, a sort of battle of a, a battle a battle of of ideas but in a kind of narrow sense that i'm right you're wrong and that's that idea of of you know i have a, an opinion and it's it's in stasis and it's formed and therefore there is no questioning of it mm. is far too prevalent you know especially in this day and age and something we probably try to rail against quite strongly i mean just over the last couple of days i know you've been off twitter but i've kind of fallen into a little bit of a, a, a twitter spiral especially a couple of days ago when this article came out about um there will be blood but i think we are always trying to address someone else's opinion with the sense that it's it's given in good faith there isn't an agenda behind it and i think that's that's the way i feel about sort of taking somebody particular i mean we'll talk about this a little bit later but taking an opinion that perhaps i don't agree with but it's like like no but the person is acting in good faith in terms of they're having that opinion so where does that that come from and especially when it's you or somebody else i kind of respect it's like ah okay so he's not saying that just to be a dick you know what i mean it's like where where does that come from you know what was the there will be blood uh, oh god you don't want to get into so basically there was this this article was written um in the guardian by a film critic to be honest i mean again i should look should have looked this up but i didn't didn't really think we'd be talking about it but it was an article that, that basically was from a female critic who was writing that there will be blood was the film that all her previous boyfriends or a lot of her previous boyfriends had told her to watch so she watched it and she thought it was crap. So they were all wrong. You know what I mean? All right, I'm paraphrasing. And, and it's a, it, it basically sparked a, a lot of Twitter debate, yeah. really, on, on in various levels, which was quite... Actually, a lot of it was, was quite interesting. And it went yeah. in lots of different directions. It made me think in lots of different ways. So it, it had a positive impact. But it, it mm. was funny how that the... the it, I think it, it raised a, a lot of argument because it, to me, my criticism w- w- of it was it did seem like there was a little bit of bad faith in there where it's just like here was a, a critic waiting to say something that was going to be controversial in the, yeah. you know, in this way that that, that is, it's in, you know, it seems to be that ilk of, of um, film criticism was done in a sort of deliberate calculating way to, yeah, yeah. To, to stir up a twist storm and it worked so she's done a good job the uh, the writer <laughs> indeed yeah yeah and it's not like that that sort of thing can't be done really kind of cleverly and smartly and critically i remember that great piece a few years ago it was like the history of quentin tarantino films through men i've dated you know so this woman kind of reflecting on what her boyfriends had t- but it was not about the films it was about the you know a, ma- a masculine cinephilia in a in that kind of way this was, I think, this what was what that was attempting to be, and I think the people who who liked the piece said that's what it was. But I mean, I think there was a sense 
where it, it, it does get to a point with any of those things. It's like, why are you listening to the men? Why, just watch the film that you want to watch. <laughs> yeah. You know there's what I mean? It's like nobody's going to... Yeah. I'm going to take responsibility for my own film watching, even if a thousand people tell me to watch something. When I watch it, it's my responsibility still. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, but then the the sphere that it, that goes out into is so different to... Yeah, you know the, what that kind of would have been, you know, because it's kind of reminiscent in terms of egos and agendas of like you know Kale and Saris, you know, kind of yeah. warring. But the 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 audience for that it was so narrow, yeah. and and so you know uh, analog, <laughs> you know, mm. let letters once a month in a publication yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than yeah, you know, and I think I do, we've talked about this a lot, but it feels like that yeah that. That, that kind of lens that it gets absolutely refracted through instantly it just blows it up. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that was interesting to me was how many freelancers were just like, oh my God, there's so much great film writing out there. Why are we? Why is that in The Guardian? There was a sort yeah. it seemed to twang a nerve, particularly of freelance writers who, you know, who are very, very serious about sort of film criticism. And it's like, yeah. this, this was a, I mean, it's part of a series that clear, clearly The Guardian had, you know, commission that they were going to put on, and it, it it was doing what it was. What it was, you know, it had a, a specific intention in that sense. But yeah, I kind of understood that <laughs> that, yeah. that, that there is so many people who will put a lot lot of effort into, you know, quite sophisticated film crit- criticism, and I think- and that just takes all the oxygen up, doesn't it? Which again yeah, kind of goes exactly. back to what we're trying yeah, to do, yeah, yeah. which is to to not uh, add fuel to those kind of fires and do something a bit different. Um, Let's move on then. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's not better, but it's, yeah, yeah. All, it's all in that, isn't yeah. it? Because it's, it, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. just, we just don't, it, you know, and we're all guilty of kind of falling into those rabbit yeah, holes and arguments, are. but, you know, because we're human yeah, beings, yeah, but yeah, they're definitely, the, that's not our agenda. And um, it's nice that, that Andrew kind of uh, gets that, you know, as, much, as, as, as so many of our listeners do. And then he asked, uh, who was the critic or person who inspired us to go down uh, our kind of path of film analysis, film criticism, film writing? And uh, you've got a nice list of uh, academics uh, from your kind of formative years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was one that, um, again, it, it, it probably different to you. I didn't have a Roger Ebert or a Pauline Kael that was the I mean, I've read their stuff, but since kind of yeah, like yeah. I became interested in film, and it's definitely from an academic standpoint. I mean, the first sort of writer and, and, and film book that I really sort of gravitated towards when I went to university was a book called Camera Politica by Douglas Kellner and Michael Ryan. And it, it just sort of showed how sophisticated film writing could be, particularly in a sense of ideological criticism about films and how they relate relate to politics. And then I got into... People might might roll their eyes who who know these writers, but people like Frederick Jameson and Michel Foucault, very sort of postmodernist writers who informed my um, my uh, PhD. But then I really love just just kind of in the in a reading sense, people like Susan Sontag and, and Roland Barthes, John Berger, um, the masculinity stuff. Steve Neal, I remember his book Masculinity on Spectacle, uh, Masculinity as Spectacle was a big book. And then writers like Yvonne Tasker, Stephen Cohen, and In Ray Hark, their screening the male book was really was really influential but 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 going back before that I mean it was TV critics for me probably Barry Norman Alex Cox and Mark Cousins and when you know Barry Norman doing the 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 film show on the BBC one and then movie drone of course which we've we've talked about so those are probably the ones historically that I would point to yeah and uh, similar for me I mean I I I didn't have you know I never didn't read any of the big ones till 
university or beyond, uh, like Keel and, and Saris and um, uh, Ebert. And it was Barry Norman for me as well, uh, who was the first critic that I really responded to. Mm. Um, and just, yeah, just enjoy. I just love watching that show. Um, and then Cox and, and, and Cousins as I got a bit older and kind of watching late night, um, late night uh, terrestrial TV in the UK. When I... Um, when I went to university, it kind of changed. And the first book that I really loved, academic sort of criticism book that I loved was Peter Bondanella's History of Italian Cinema. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because I really loved, really loved the Italian cinema, the National Cinemas module, and it was Italian cinema. I'll talk a little bit more about one of those films later. Um, but I really loved that book, you know, just the history and thought and ideas kind of all, all kind of working together. And I started reading Time Out, at the time because yeah, yeah, yeah. um, the, the the homework was always like watch movies so it had TV listings but it also had cinema listings and I was studying yeah. in London so and Jeff Andrew was a critic that I really loved because um, he loved all the same movies that I did as that you know was I was getting into American indie cinema and he was a big champion of Jarmusch and Soderbergh and Hal Hartley and people like that and introduced me to a lot of a lot of filmmakers I still really love and the other one I did want to mention was a uh, who was a tutor so academic and a lecturer called Peter Matthews, who also at the time wrote wrote for Sight and Sound, and it was just thrilling to be taught by someone who, and then read their writing, yeah. you know, and 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 to understand that, and we'll talk about this later on as well. But like criticism, academia, cinephilia, and how blurry those lines often are, and it was you know he introduced me to some really great uh, queer cinema and and kind of mainstream cinema such as Douglas Sirk when he taught, he taught the melodrama module um, and he's the person who tried to get me into Fassbinder and I just like nah I'm not but then he was the first person I thought of years and years later when I watched more Fassbinder and I remember how he talked about it uh, yeah. and how he would write about um, cinema and just it was just such a nice memory and kind of remembered actually that was at the time I didn't realise how formative it was but just that the different perspective and the care that he gave to the thinking about film was just was yeah. really really uh, imprinting. Yeah, I did. To be honest, I had a similar thing. I put Sheffield at Sheffield Hallam, and and sort of to read, and then be taught by Tom Ryle and Frank Krupnik and Catherine Constable and Sheldon Hall and Mark Shield. All those guys were 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 publishing, and they you know there was sort of this part of this probably the second movement of British film criticism. You know, so yeah, that that was really influential without a doubt. And, and to be honest, when I just just pinged into my head really was Peter Biskind mm. Easy Riders yeah. Raging Bull that's probably the first out and out film book I read cover to cover yeah, yeah. I would I would probably say yeah that. no that was a big influence as well again just for all of that uh, all of those movies that were so so important and having that kind of dynamic yeah, writing yeah, yeah. about it was just yeah it was exhilarating yeah so thank you so much Andrew for your your contribution there so uh, now we're going to move on to three contributions uh, from some of our listeners and friends. Uh, we've got uh, Marbell, who runs the site uh, Director's Notes, Ryan Gilby, film critic for The New Statesman, and the musician Gweno, talking about why like, they like the podcast and some of the episodes that have stuck with them the most. And yeah, we'll be back after their contributions for a little kind of chat about what they have to say.
Hi Neil and Dario, Marbell from Director's Notes here, wishing you a happy 100th episode of The Cinematologist, which has been a constant in my podcast player since you launched five years ago. There are a lot of favourite episodes I could point to, such as your unranked year-end reviews, film festival wrap-ups from the likes of Berlin or London, episode 70 being a particularly great one in my opinion. However, I'd like to brag about my long-time listener status by highlighting episode 17 from your first year and the discussion you had with Dr. Catherine. Grant, founder of the Film Studies for Free online archive and champion of the video essay form who very much leads by impressive example through her own work. If the world doesn't end before then, here's to another 100 episodes. Hi Neil, hi Dario, this is Ryan Gilby from the New Statesman. Just wanted to say congratulations on the 100th episode. Um, I think one of the elements I appreciate most in the podcast is the way that your personalities and your friendship and your curiosity um, feed into the way that you talk about cinema and the way that you do interviews. Um, I really loved being given the chance to introduce Clueless, one of my favourite films, um, to an audience in Falmouth and then for our discussion afterwards to be on the podcast. Um, But even better for me as a listener and as a cinematologist fan was the discussion afterwards that you guys had about the film and about the audience's reaction to it. Uh, because you're such good friends, you can challenge one another without it becoming rancorous. And there's, you know, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of rancor in criticism. Um, and I loved how Dario's negative response to Clueless was challenged by uh, Neil, who I remember at one point was asking, and well, you know, you're happy to watch Jean-Paul Belmondo posing and brooding and freewheeling in a Goddard film, and yet as soon as a teenage girl does it in a shopping mall, Uh, In a film like Clueless, it becomes kind of culturally devalued. And that was all really fascinating. It became about so much more than just the film um, and just became more than just a discussion about Clueless. Uh, And and, I don't know, you just found found something really sort of insightful in your um, differing responses to the film. I think that's typical for me of the way that you guys interrogate one another's responses. And it makes us as, as listeners think about our own reactions and, and do the same. So all I wanted to say really was just keep doing what you're doing. Keep digging. Um, and here's to another hundred. Dista, this is Gwenna. Congratulations, Keslowena, to everyone at The Cinematologist for reaching your hundredth episode. My favourite moment stroke episode was episode 40 feminist surrealism and film with dr sabina stent and dr felicity g it was a brilliant introduction to a vast subject and my adaren was a revelation to me i'm ashamed to say that i hadn't come across her work before listening to this episode so a huge thank you for opening another door and I would urge anyone who hasn't listened to that episode in particular to have a listen it's brilliant so lots of interesting stuff there that we can talk about I mean first of all just this discussion on the balance between mainstream art house and other types of filmmaking because obviously there's not only those two although sometimes you know, those are the two that kind of get mentioned as a sort of binary in encompassing everything. But we do try to be as wide as we can in terms of the 
the types of films and the types of film themes that we that we talk about. I mean, what's your sense of how that's happened and how we've done it? I think it's it kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier about the almost being at a slower pace than a lot of other podcasts, you know, and I think that never feeling in a rush to comment or to cover something has left us in this interesting space of, well, what do we actually want to do? And, you know, Gweno talked there about the surrealism and female experimental filmmaker episode, which like so many of our episodes have just come out of an opportunity that's been offered. And the, the fact that we can just say, yeah, let's, let's do this and never feeling like we have to know a lot about something yeah that helps do an episode <laughs> on it you know and to want to bring people in want to bring people in to talk about it It was interesting when i met gweno uh, only recently and um and, and she sort of said about that episode and one of the things she loved about the episode as well was that we gave felicity and sabina space yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to feel confident that when i said something stupid or unformed or in the moment they could just say no that's wrong <laughs> or it's or the you know like but you know because i'm not trying to tell them you know i'm kind of trying yeah, i want to yeah. find out more you know when we're bringing people on in any capacity we always want to to learn more you know i think of the essay film one as well you know it's like well just a, a great opportunity to learn more about essay films which have always sat in the periphery of my viewing knowledge mm-hmm. and understanding but here's a chance where we're being invited to do something and we can we can talk about it but also it kind of it shifts the other way in terms of you know you know your interest in sci-fi and wanting to you know seeing blade runner and then it's like i need to talk about this you know so it, it is a again a kind of a, a showcase of of our taste in terms and our interest but also I, I hope that it's 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 a space where we we show that we are just interested you know and that whatever people you know want us to talk about as long as we feel like we can not just offer an opinion but offer a a way of talking about it that will be of value i think that that we'll 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 try and do it which i think has served us well um and i think that's why people like it because i think that you know it's you you kind of you never really know what you're going to get a lot of the time because we don't know what we're going to get <laughs> we don't know how we're going to feel about the films we don't know what we're going to have to say and so much of it is us trying to work out a way of talking about it in the moment um, as we kind of respond to stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing I would just add to that is the the question of when we go mainstream and which films we go mainstream on. And, and I think that there's always a sort of, in my mind anyway, there's always a clear um, target of not deliberately jumping on a specific bandwagon at a, a moment. I mean, there's times where we've done it, but I think that there's been always a sort of justification behind that. I mean, the big one is, yeah, I, actually, I do want to talk about this at this moment. Mm. That That's right. Um, and then I think when we've done... But just to cut in there, sorry. I think, but that's why the bonus has yeah, been great as yeah. well. We do a lot of that on the bonus yeah, we stuff because we, you know, we know that it's a way to get it out and for people to listen to yeah. it. Yeah, and I think when we've done new films, I think they have been new films that have been war- you know, warranting exposure when maybe they didn't already have it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that it's just that that thing of, you know, we some things don't need to be added to and therefore other people could do it. It's like, you know, I have been asked, oh, when are you going to do Tarantino? And it's like, we don't really need to add to that. There's other places yeah. that 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 can that have done that and will do that, and we don't really need to to add to it. So let's let's not. Let's just do 
something else and do what, what we want to do. Yeah. Well, that's I shared that thing from Vague Visage recently, didn't I, on the why criticism with you, yeah. which was, you know, why write a 250-word appraisal of um, Rafifi by Dasan when you can just yeah. th- shout about how problematic <laughs> the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. And yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that, you know, that, yeah, we've... And like I think a lot of the new films we have chosen um, have been, yeah, because we think, well, who, you know, we know we might get 25 people actually buying a ticket or renting it, you know, at least, and hopefully more. But you know that there's going to be a core audience who are going to go and seek it out, which just feels like you're doing something of of real value for those filmmakers and for those films, even when you don't necessarily like them as much, or but you yeah. can see that you can see they deserve an audience as much as yeah. as much as the big stuff does. So. Yeah. And then I sort of mentioned it there in terms of our thinking of the podcast, um, you know, but but you've got kind of very kind of specific ideas in terms of what podcasting is as a kind of tool for criticism, um, particularly in relation to video essays, which kind of uh, Marvin talked about. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, this, about the, about the relationship between cinephilia, film criticism in a popular sense, and then film academia. And I think, you know, we're just always trying to mess around with those boundaries and cut across them and and bring them I mean again at, at this point it's difficult to see for me what what the difference between cinephilia and film academia is apart from the fact that you can be a cinephile and not necessarily teach in a university or in a school or whatever but you know yeah. is it economic is that, is that the, the difference, difference? Like, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. so again I think that any film academic who says oh I'm an academic I'm a film academic but I'm not a cinephilia I would be like Oh, that that just wouldn't make sense to me, you know. But interestingly, in terms of the question about the video essays, and obviously Catherine Grant has been on and has been a big supporter of the the show, um, Omar Bell mentioned, and I think it's that's an area I definitely want to kind of move into more. Um, I've got a, a bigger one planned. I've just been um, messing around a little bit. I just did a little one on Holy Motors, just a little minute long one, just the other day, and yeah, really, really enjoyed putting it together quite quickly. Um, and it's very good. Oh, thank you. Um, and I've got a, a bigger one planned, which is actually related to sound as well. And that's, I think, the, the difference. And some the, the big thing that I'm working on in terms of um, my my push more towards formally constructed podcasts, like the voice episode and other stuff I've got in mind. And I think the voice episode works because it's about sound. It's about the voice. But I think sometimes, po- you know, the great thing about podcasting is that it... it, it it allows that space for discussion. I think that's where it's it's brilliant interrelationship with film is the you know that's what I think. Hopefully, we do we we have a pr- productive conversation that is actually expansive of knowledge rather than just talking at each other or just interviewing. What have you got out? What is it about? Do you know what I mean? So there's a dialectic going on there. Whereas the video essay, I think probably more of it is more of a singular critical artifact like a review but of course it uses the advantages of images so it uses the tools of the medium to actually critique the medium um so there's crossovers there there but voice and podcasting obviously has to find a way to do it without our images and actually in that finding that struggle to find the description or to find what you want to say without the images present actually leads to something interesting i think yeah and i think you know a video essay is academic in the sense of being often thesis driven you know Mm. that it's kind of working around a particular idea and i certainly know that we're not necessarily thesis driven in in the podcast but usually there's a sense towards the end that 
we've we have a greater understanding of potential theses around certain ideas and certain things you know it's um there's always a focus and a structure but it's less about yeah this is the idea at the start and we're gonna we're just gonna kind of stay on that and we're just gonna work in that kind of mode and, and use that that kind of that space of a podcast to to explore that and that kind of you know again kind of touches on a little bit in terms of the the discussion and the reflection on what ryan was saying about creating a space where things could be challenged in the moment and uh you can hear people responding changing working out reframing um and in a kind of safe constructive space and that does feel like when you're sort of saying it there in terms of what's written on a page and then uh and a video essay it feels like it's kind of a unique thing in many ways to, to, to podcasting um particularly i think as well in terms of hours and the live format and how there's an audience present for that and the yeah. audience can the audience can build on it you know because obviously you know there have been challenging interviews and challenging conversations on tv and radio but they're not often in a space where you know an audience's understanding can can in, in, interact with it and build on it you know so it becomes this really wide kind of discursive space hopefully that's something we've learned to do it's definitely something i've learned in doing the live episodes where it was kind of like you never know what's going to come mm. so you have to be ready to sort of you know yeah maybe you want to push back but you have to push back in a certain kind of way that acknowledges the the point of view or acknowledges at least the premise of what it what is being said and just on that, I mean, it's interesting on the that, that episode on Clueless and what you said there, that really made me have to, have to think and also th- like resist the defensiveness yeah. of that of that thinking. I mean, it's it, it just makes you think how politics is a hard job, <laughs> really. You know, because like you, you don't always think on your feet quickly enough to be able to have a response. And I didn't have, a, I mean, a response on that. I mean, it's interesting because now having gone away and thought about it, it's kind of like, there are responses to that that I that I have now. Like for example, you know the the idea that that because I I mean that that's the the big pre- the premise of the criticism that I disagree with is that because I don't like Clueless, I reject all films and representations of teenage girls. I I, I think that's a flawed pre- premise reaction to that point. So you know John Hughes uh, films, Mean Girls, Easy A, Heather's, Cruel Intentions, Booksmart, love all those movies. I think it's clueless that i don't like <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean and that, but, that, but that's but that's the that's, thing isn't it fine, yeah and that's what, I mean? what that's what the conversation was wasn't it was like yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah you know are you saying you know this representation which is you know a, a common representation is because of the fact that you are thinking on your feet and you're formulating stuff as you go as we both are you often say things in a way that res- makes the other person say well i want to know if that's what you actually mean yeah, yeah you know yeah. I, I want yeah. you to draw that out are yeah. you saying that this is a is it just this thing or is it how it represents other things, you know. Absolutely, and and plus, and it, it's interesting because as well, you've got to. It, the podcast shows you you've got to be careful with language because it's kind of like that idea of of just offhand saying, "Oh, well, this is a vacuous film," and like it's interesting because there's different ways of sort of interpreting that, isn't there? So on the one hand, I could say that I, I think that the comparison to sort of European art house as vacuous, again, I think that's problematic because now sort of having reflected on it, it's the idea that, I mean, I think we were talking about Antonioni as a, you know, you're quite happy to go and watch Alan Delon swamp around Europe. And that's, and, and isn't that vacuous? And I think that I would say that those films are actually about vacuousness. They're talking about a, an implied criticism of the conditions which create those people. Whereas my problem with Clueless was that 
it revels and delights in the vacuousness in a way that just turns me off. However, having said that, that's not to say there are thousands of vacuous films about 40-year-old white men, because there are. And I think even in terms of the vacuousness of an experience, like a, a better comparison would be to say to me something like, well, you like watching Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise running around. And that's a kind of, could be considered a sort of vacuous throwaway experience and in a sense yeah that that that's probably a closer criticism to be able to say you you are you love that and that has the same kind of effect as this over here yeah but i mean again th- th- that could be wrong because i think that I, i'm in the minority here so many people love clueless you know i'm clearly in the minority and they get something out of it more than it just being a guilty ple- pleasure in a sort of vacuous mode of escapism but that you know that's it, it's it's such an interesting it's just such an interesting idea then to be able to come at those two positions from those two different positions and think through all of those elements and to to get away from I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was Goddard and Belmondo that I was, you know, knowing your love mm. of... Uh, and how, you know, but but, yeah, but yeah. The, the point still stands. Yeah, and it, because it was, yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. It, I think it was because you were... To- the, the line between how you were talking about the character of Cher and how we've talked about... Yeah the character of, you know, of, of Belmondo's characters in like Pierre Le Fou or, or Breathless, you know, it's like, mm. I can't see, I can't see the difference here in, in, in your formulation. So wanting mm. to, wanting to push you to, yeah, wanting yeah. to push you to, not to change your mind, but, but to, to make you think, mm. which is, you know, which is hopefully what, you know, is reciprocated, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not mm. interested in getting you to like Clueless, but I've seen an, I've seen a moment there where, mm. I, you know, my knowledge of you and, and our yeah. experience, uh, I think that, you know, there's 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 a gap to exploit mm. your thinking and I want to hear you think more and I want to hear mm. you think on your feet and I want to hear you formulate and I want to hear you push back intellectually and find more of a of a way of talking about it in in yourself, not to change my mind and not to change your mind, but just to mm. just to hear your thoughts in a more, you know, ex- extrapolated and formulated and considered manner, um, rather than just again, which I think is is something you hear a lot as well, which is like, not only um, are you right and I'm wrong, or vice versa, but also that you know what you say is is sacrosanct because you've said it. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, I respect yeah, what yeah, you've yeah, said. Yeah. I'm not trying to challenge what you've said on a kind of um, exploitative or you know, kind of. Uh, mischievous manner you know but 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 i'm not gonna i don't want to let that stand because i think you have more to say that will be of a deeper significance than just than just this is this and this is this and then i think that's the thing that the podcast has definitely taught me is like again getting past that very quick knee-jerk defensiveness and pushing past the again that that phrase that i'm using bad faith or the sense that the other person has an ulterior agenda for less than genuine reasons for making for making this point but because because in a way that's true a lot of the time out there in the world people do have agendas but in art and culture i think we've got to kind of resist that and i think that it's definitely helped me being on the podcast in 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 doing that and also sort of recognizing how to how to put how to push back and how to rearticulate yeah. or even how to sort of say well yeah you know that that point is is fair enough and there is there is no answer to that in in yeah. In in a sense of yeah, yeah, guilty as charged. You know what I mean? It's like I, yeah, yeah. and and I think that you know maybe even the, the simplest answer is yeah, we are we're all conditioned by our own our own sense of our identities. So yeah, 
you know, to a certain degree, and we can be open to other stuff. But there is there, there is always that that's, that is guiding us to some. Degree. Yeah, no, I think I think we're aware of that of our like say taste and and, and preference and experiences. Mm. But I do think we've always approached it from the from the starting point of not being afraid to say I don't know, particularly, and I think that's why the live element why the live element has has been so formative in terms of how we talk about stuff because from day one we like you say we never knew what was going to come out and we had to respond to that and we never approached it from as responding it to with you're right or wrong or this is how it is it was like okay what's the shared ideas about this experience which has always been yeah Yeah, really really fun yeah cool uh so next we have uh a good friend of the show and as he'll tell you one of our i don't know is, is there a word for our sort of uber followers people who were there at the very first episode in the audience i don't know if there's a word for those guys but james matra was definitely one yeah um well they're cinematologists aren't they that's what we always said <laughs> yeah, you know okay. it's a collective it's a community it's a collective, you know yes. um you are and and yeah he is he is one of the top cinematologists yes. if there is a hierarchy which yeah. which there isn't there isn't. <laughs> there isn't there really isn't yeah so um yeah a long time listener and supporter of the, the show who can be heard across many episodes uh, in the early days as an audience member and more recently uh, as a contributor in the London Film Festival uh, episode from, from last year. And yeah, this is his uh, reflection and question for us. Hello, my name is James Matry. Uh, congratulations on reaching 100 episodes, guys. Um, it's been great to follow along the way. I was in the audience for Repo Man, the very first episode. Uh, and I think in the first kind of few episodes, you can even hear my voice asking questions and such. But yeah, congratulations. I wanted to kind of list a couple of my favourite episodes um, and talk about why I listen. Um, obviously, as a film graduate, it's been a great resource in terms of focusing my mind post-uni, you know, when I'm not in that environment as much and discussing films on the daily basis. It's been really great to hear great discussion about film um, at kind of a high critical level. Uh, my favourite episodes are kind of anything you've done with Mark Jenkin, uh, the Cinephilia episode you did with So Mayer and Girish Shambu was really great. Um, my favourite episode is probably the Ghost Story episode you did. It was one I did properly with uh, watching the film and then hearing the discussion and then have, kind of having that full response. And it was just a really beautiful episode. Um, and I think you guys did some really great work there. In terms of a question or a point of discussion, I wanted to hear about your favourite cinemas and your favourite cinema going experiences. We're in a climate at the moment where a lot of cinemas are kind of facing a feat of struggle, you know, with with the the virus and everything, it's going to be interesting to see how cinemas can get back on their feet. So I think it'd be a really nice time to just kind of hear a very general discussion about your favourite cinemas around the world and the favourite times you've seen movies there. Cheers then, guys. All the best. Great. So thanks, James, again, for the continued support. And we'll have you back on very soon for sure. And a great question. So favourite cinemas around the world? And maybe if you, I don't know if you can remember seeing anything there. All blurs into... <laughs> one for me a lot of the time what I actually saw but but where do you like to be to watch films uh, anywhere 
really, uh, is what I've realised. <laughs> Especially now. <laughs> yeah. Well, even now, yeah. I mean, I could have done a home viewing one, um, and I will talk a little bit later on about VHS. But, um, yeah, just loads. And I kind of, I've had a lot of fun with this. I'm just going to rattle through a load um, yeah, go because on. I've got quite a few. Um, so the ABC in Luton, which was my one of my first format, well, my, my first ever cinematic experience my first ever memory one of my earliest memories was was seeing et and i remember two images from et from being about three but i remember the bus ride and my dad taking me in my dressing gown as a kid and we had my slippers in a bag and i just remember the bus ride and the whole feeling of the space and that really is the the uh, the kind of that is the earliest memory i have and I still feel it and it's so important. And that was a cinema that I saw so many great things in. And one of my favourite ones was finishing work and getting the bus and kind of running through the streets to catch the beginning of train spotting on opening night. Um, and then kind of literally running in just as the film started and having Ewan McGregor run at me. I'll never forget that. <laughs> um, I'll never forget that kind of juxtaposition, which was amazing. Um, seeing Natural Born Killers at a drive-in in Portland in 1994 on opening night. And then obviously it was banned in the UK. So I'd seen it in this amazing experience and it was a perfect drive-in movie. And then kind of being able to recall that and talk to people about it for for months until it was available to be seen. Uh, Anthology Film Archives in New York, uh, where I saw The Killing on 16 mil in 1999. The Metrograph on my last trip to New York, where I saw Parting Glances. Um, any other New York cinema, I think that was it. Um, the uh, The Empire in Letter Square, where I saw The Master on 17 mil. The Palace, the, uh, the Berlinale. Oh, nice. uh, the Amazing Grace press screening and The Corriader with you this year. Uh, two of my favourite cinema experiences um the close-up center in east london uh, where i saw opening night the cassavetes on 35 mil which is the film that made wilderness possible um uh, uh seeing el gran buck howard the grand buck howard which is on dvd in a cinema in cuba uh which is a very uh strange experience and uh two more new lynn uh film house uh, which is my local cinema now, seeing one, one More Time with Feeling, the Nick Cave documentary with, with my wife, and just being kind of completely overwhelmed. Be, uh, if Beale Street Could Talk, uh, seeing Patterson with you there, and uh, then the double bill of transit and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last summer, which was just fantastic. And then finally, The Curzon Soho, which is a cinema which means so much to me, not just as a, as a, as a viewer, but as a filmmaker. Cast a lot of my films there and screened, screened films there at Joe Strummer Film Festival. My first ever short played there in front of Plan 9 from Outer Space and I was back there with another short in in January and again seen so many movies there, uh, my own and others and just it's it's a it's a great space for for cinema. Um, so you might have to slow that down to, to get all of those but I did. I, it was a question that really, yeah, it really kind of, yeah, definitely. So thank you James for that uh, wow. question. That inspired you for sure. Brilliant. So I've got, I've got, a few that have got films attached to them, but a lot of just venues that I like anyway. But I suppose sort of growing up in Leeds, the, the there's two big venues. There's the Odeon on the corner and the ABC in Leeds. And the Odeon's a funny one because I used to meet my old man there because my parents were divorced. And that we used to meet outside the the, the Odeon in uh, the corner of, of Leeds, which is it's gone now. And it just holds this sort of memory just as a sort of space of identity as much as anything else you know what I mean I mean anybody who's sort of a you know as as men we have difficult relationships with our fathers anyway but as a child of divorce that sort of has a really significant place in my in my sort of memory of where I'm from and all that kind of thing but then the ABC in Leeds is where I saw Superman in 78 for the first time and I think that's probably my earliest cinematic memory and just yeah I mean 
unbelievable experience, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, it's so many years ago, you can't really put into words what it probably was like, but I just, I do remember being there. Then um, going to university and going to the showroom in Sheffield. And I think the first film we saw there as a sort of cohort was Fight Club. And I just remember coming out of Fight Club and, and, and we all went in the bar and it's the first time I sort of thought, oh yeah, I'm a real sort of academic here discussing films after coming out of the... You know, they were coming out and why people liked it, why people didn't like it, and that and that kind of thing. Um, and in Leeds again, the Hyde Park Picture House, which I kind of got into going to when I was moving that to that area of the city, and it was a very sort of small, old school um, art house cinema. And it was when I first realised that there were sort of different types of cinemas. Really, it didn't sort of register. I don't think until until that point. Um, in London, I love going to the Curzon Aldgate. I think it's the it's the the most sort of undiscovered cinema in, in London in terms... I mean, it, you know, it's part of the Curzon chain and, and Soho is great as well and I go to Bloomsbury a lot. But it's just something about Curzon because it's always quiet. <laughs> so uh, I don't know whether I should be sharing this, but it's a great place to go um, for, an, for if you want to really focus on something. And we saw, seen lots of stuff there. Ad Astra and High Life both saw there, which was great. A screen on the green, really good. Um, just down the road now from uh, from where I live in Islington. Uh, I like going to the BFI. So whenever stuff is on there, it's uh, it's really nice. It was great. Just was at the um, the Q and A between Mark Kermode and Tilda Swinton, which was uh, good fun. Always try to get to the the chats when I can. And then of course in in Berlin, and just you know, in terms of the films, is almost it's not inc- inconsequential. But I just love going to the international. And I loved it when that that film was referenced in um, Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron has a great scene of her sort of walking past it with the big poster of Solaris on the on the front, which uh, I really like that film. It's an underappreciated film, I think. Atomic Blonde I really liked it, and then the Colosseum in Berlin, which is out to the east of the city, and it just sort of does remind me of. You know that. I mean, again, I don't want to sort of overtly romanticize the idea of the history of Berlin, but you know, the different architectural schools I think can be appreciated, despite the the history that they come out of. But yeah, the Colosseum in Berlin is a great place to see to see films because it's one of those it's one of those long thin screening rooms rather than the big flat wide ones. So great, yeah. Great, uh, lovely question, James. Thanks for that. Uh, you. You also wanted to talk about the, I guess, a bit more about the podcast in terms of people's listening, because he mentioned there about Ghost Story, where yeah. he, you know, listen to us, watch the film, listen to us, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just funny, interesting that that I think that that was my sort of feeling about my intention about how to structure the podcast early on when we were cutting between doing a, an intro and a Q&A. And, and, and even on some of the earlier episodes, you can hear me sort of saying, now's the time to put the film on if you're listening at home. And it's funny, I just think I realised quite quickly that you could, you cannot control how the audience uses the media that is out there. So it's almost kind of like we gave that up and just went, yeah, here's the podcast, you listen to it however you want. And if you want to sync it up with the film. But it's just one of those great unknowns, I think, isn't it, about... How how audiences? I mean, there's so many times in the last three or four years that that people have come up to me and said, "Yeah, I've liked this episode. I listened to that." And even when just people come up and say, "Oh, yeah, I love the podcast. It just blows me away every time." Anyway, yeah, and you realise that there are so many different variations of it. You know, um, the kind of doing it in that sense. Um, some people just listening to it to listen to how we're going to talk about something that they know that they know well. Um, sometimes to yeah, kind of 
to be introduced to stuff, uh, sometimes just for the experience of listening to people talk about films and then, you know, whatever kind of comes out of that. Uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's it's really refreshing. And I think, you know, that I know some people listen to certain, some people listen to shows that only when they don't know the films to learn about the film um, rather, you know, because yeah. even, even though there's a hundred, which isn't a lot compared to, like you say, a lot of podcasts, they're quite long. There are, you know, they are a, an investment which we understand and appreciate uh, in terms of the, t- the, you know, the length of time to listen. And, th- and some people just think, well, I know that film quite well, happy, you know, but I don't know this one, so they'll pick one that they don't know, or it'll be the comfort of us talking about something that they do know. And I think that because, again, going back to this idea of our our approach to the 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 types of films we want to talk about and the type of filmmakers we want to speak to, there is a kind of something for everyone at some point, and people know that that. That, that that's going to come round so that's uh yeah that's uh been a, another positive part of it it's all positive isn't it it's all good so far yes it's all good. good it's all good um great so um moving on you've got a, a question that was submitted by one of your students yeah so lottie who's uh also a patreon subscriber just wanted us to talk about um yeah so thank you lottie just wanted us to talk about lars and the real girl more um because it's a film that, that she really, really loves. Um, and uh, while well, I'm happy to do that, uh, I did think, you know, what was it about Lars and the Real Girl that, uh, um, that kind of, you know, what did I most get out of that experience? It was a film that I wrote about for Beneficial Shock when uh, I was doing kind of, I was asked to do a feature on unconventional love stories. And yeah. I wrote a feature on her Harold and Maud and Lars and the Real Girl. And it was easy to do her and Harold and Maud because they're both films I'd seen and loved and had a lot to kind of to say about in that specific context. But I hadn't seen Lars and the Real Girl. And often when commissioned to do stuff, you're asked to write about films that you haven't seen. And the last time I'd done that was um, a few years ago in for the dic- uh, Directory of World Cinema. I was asked to write about Manchester movies. And two of the films that I had to really focus on I hadn't seen. One was Charlie Bubbles, the Albert Finney-directed movie, which I loved, and it was, I was so happy to be introduced <laughs> to that movie. And the other one was David Lean's Hobson's Choice, which just left me completely cold. I just found it completely stayed and just, yeah, kind of, mm. yeah, kind of going through the motions. Um, so this was another one. I was like, how am I going to... I know. And, and it was a film I had avoided seeing, Lars and the Real Girl, because I thought this is going to be twee, kind of, you know just yeah affected kind of yeah indie and I just at the time I wasn't really into and I just you know I like Ryan Gosling but not you know not a complete uh disciple of him um so I sat down with an open mind thinking okay and I was absolutely kind of dumbstruck by it you know and I just found it a really really moving film and a really smart film and it really took me by surprise and I was like okay I did not give this the credit that it deserved and a lot of that's marketing you know but but also my kind of prejudice yeah. um and it was really rewarding to be able to write about a film fresh and not you know just kind of really really get into it um and be kind of taken away from it so it's nice that, that lottie asked and i did quickly read the piece and one of the things i realized that i wrote about or i didn't write about was but it's kind of referenced is this idea of what normal is um that's what yeah. i was going to say yeah yeah, no, it's just like that, that, that. I agreed with that. What you were saying, it's like the idea of one of the things that I think films do that that work on a level of, I don't want to say, you know, 
politics is an easy thing to say, but actually, you know, there's that question of do, do, do films matter anymore? But that, that idea of, I mean, I had quite a conservative upbringing. I think that what films has helped, what great films that I've loved or have changed me have helped me to do is sort of see something that maybe from the outset I would have gone, well, that's, um, I don't agree with that, or that's just out and out strange. You are abnormal for being like that. And to take a subject like that and actually, you know, look at the ins and outs of it and 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 sort of, yeah, actually this, this person is a human being and is having an, uh, you know, and thinks and has an experience in this way. And, you know, it's it's interesting how films allow you to sort of go in and out of the, the difficulties and the contradictions of that to get to a place where you're like, oh, actually, this is not a straightforward this guy's weird kind of thing. Yeah, and it says a lot about the 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 industry of film because within the film itself, it's complex and nuanced. But you, but mm. you just know that that reaction that you're talking about there is often the reaction of the people who have made the film in a commercial sense, and then they want to. Mm. They're like, well, we can't we can't distribute it like that, so we'll just we'll reduce it to being oh, yep. you know, Ryan Gosling, you know, buys a sex doll. And kind of you know yeah. has a weird relationship with it, and it's like, well, yeah, that's a small part of the plot, um, you know. But you can see those decisions and that fear and that like, I don't understand this, so I'm going to reduce it to this. Mm. But and then that puts people off. It certainly put me off because I was like, mm, I'm not sure I fancy that. And then when I see the film, I'm like, oh, okay, this is not the film that's been advertised. Um, and it was so great. So yeah, thank you for thank you for asking about that, um, Lottie. And yeah, kind of, I'd love the way in the film he was asked to live. He was asked to live a kind of with a definition of a label, you know, like they everyone wants him to be normal, and he he never says it, but he doesn't really understand what normal is, you know, and kind of presents something which he presents something abnormal as normal to say what is normal, um, and it's a kind of consciousness, it's an act where he kind of he's working through his own mental health issues, but also highlighting, you know, what people's projection, which is all well well meaning and kind of thoughtful and considerate, how misplaced it can be in terms of the subject not understanding what the question is or what the task is you know and kind of putting it back on those people and saying okay well I think this is normal because I don't know what normal is and then they deal with that as normal and they understand him better and it's just such a clever film and it's the tone Mm. of it and the way it plays out and how much time is given over to people being compassionate and understanding and working through something as a community I think is absolutely golden and yeah, really, really great. And then it did make me other, th- yeah, kind of what other films have surprised me. And I've realised that, you know, it happens quite a lot, but often mm. it's kind of small and kind of nice. Um, and and I, th- I, re- I think that um, one thing I'm quite proud of is that as the older I've got, the more, you know, the more open-minded I've got about the kind of films I want to watch. And the podcast, like I said earlier, right at the start, has had a big part of that. And I'll kind of watch most things now, Um of all genres and all types, because I'm just I'm more curious as I get older and, than less. But what surprised me recently was when I was talking about Booksmart in a in a in an MA session, and one of the students was just absolutely flabbergasted that not only had I seen it, but that I had liked it. You know, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which kind of makes me realise, yeah, it's kind of rare for people, particularly our age, to like new things or things that are considered for a yeah, different yeah, yeah. kind of audience. You know, and that still surprises me that people. You know, and sometimes I do it just to just to get a reaction when I tell them I like certain things because I know that their their <laughs> assumption as students is that oh Neil's yeah. Neil's not going to dig that, or even if he says he is, he's going to be the old oh I dig the hip hop, 
you know, kind of like, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but when yeah. I want to talk about it, I want to talk about Booksmart and its representation of friendship and its representation of, you know, coming of age and, and you know, the, because I, th- I just thought it was great, you know, and that was a surprise yeah, in the yeah. sense of it had been talked about a lot, um, but it's still right. Just And what surprised me about that was how funny it was. Like, that was genuinely Oh, funny. it's fucking hilarious. I mean, it did. that was the film that I mentioned there on the list. It was just like that really, really surprised me because I, I did think maybe it's going to be, you know, by the numbers stuff that you you've we, we've we've seen before, but I I really think it does some interesting interesting stuff there, and and you know again it's a pity it, it didn't it didn't get mm. seen more, but yeah that that sense of of being surprised and being curious I think are in tandem, aren't they? And and I think you know it's sometimes again without without generalizing that sometimes you wish that students were a little bit more like that. You know what I mean? You've almost got. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's our job. We've got to. We've got to kind of get them interested and curious in things. But you, sometimes you wish that they come a little bit more with, with that. And so, and I, I think maybe it is to do with the way that that, that culture is is kind of delivered yeah. to them. These but I days, think if we're know? curious, it helps. I do believe that. You know, yeah. if we show them that we're curious about what they like, then I think that you know. And then that did happen sort of later on when I showed Moonlight. You know, which none of them had seen. I showed a, a diner clip. And they were, they were, they were, in, they were open to it because they were like, "Well, Neil yeah. likes Booksmart." <laughs> you know, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah. I, you know yeah, they're yeah. small things, but I do think that, that kind of curiosity is what you said earlier about the kind of the cinephilia academia blend. You know, I think that I think there's a real value, mm. not to judge other people who don't, but I think there's a real value in being open to the entire experience of cinema as a way of showing people just the array of stuff that's out there and not saying you must like this, but, but that there are other things that you might like. And it's kind of in yeah, developing yeah, yeah. that curiosity, I think is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Just on that. I mean, it's great when that happens. I mean, the, the, the biggest one for me, I just know that straight away. The the film that surprised me more than anything else was Holy Motors, which I've mentioned, you know, in nauseous detail a lot on the podcast, but just every episode. I yeah. Get so much. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so. But, but, it is just that that thing of oh yeah here's this festival film I, I've never to be honest I've never heard of the filmmaker up to that point you know it's one of my blind spots went in watched it and it was just like that was it for the rest of the festival I just just thought about nothing else and it was like that is unbelievable and then you know I remember when we went to see Frank in the early days and and yeah. that was a film that really surprised me um, and when I was watching it, I was like oh I bet I bet Neil loves this because you were sat sort of three three <laughs> ways are it's like yeah this is really really great and what surprised me is how a film kind of kind of is very difficult i think to create a sort of band a believable cult mm. band that doesn't actually exist previously and they yeah. just managed to do that and then yeah i mean again you're a big jarmusch guy and you know you're you've got a history of that but then just to, to see patterson when we watched it and just be you know film of the year for me that year and and just loved it so much not expecting yeah and the same as again kind of i wasn't expecting it to to do what it did but one of one of the nice surprises of this podcast was when i got julian temple down here you know and um i was really interested in how you take to the future as unwritten not because you'd be anti it but because of you know you have Mm. talked on the podcast a lot about how music's not a and I and because I'm so connected to the music, I wonder what it says outside of that. Yeah. And it was so great yeah. to that you that you enjoyed it, but also that you could see you could see things in it that I 
couldn't see as much because of my association with it you know and that was a that was a nice surprise that you that you responded to it the way you did um and that you then kind of helped me see things in it that that that, you know are kind of obscured but kind of you know i'm always kind of leaning towards certain aspects of it because of the music and what the music Mm. means to me great uh so who's up next next we've got uh ren zelen and her contribution, uh, which also includes a, a question, which we will get to after this. So thank you, Ren, and here she is. Hi, I'm Ren Zelen. I'm a freelance film reviewer, academic editor, and occasional writer of post-apocalyptic science fiction. I discovered the Cinematologists podcast, hosted by academics Dario Linares and Neil Fox, several years ago now, and I was immediately intrigued and engaged. Theirs is a podcast that manages to offer an entertaining mix of lively, informal chat with informative and insightful discussions on all matters related to film. The Cinematologist podcast has deservedly gone from strength to strength, becoming a favourite with cinephiles. Dario and Neil offer illumination and food for thought, but they also provide advice to anyone who might be thinking about how to create a wide-ranging, zippy podcast. And that is advice that is particularly useful in these extraordinary times. I suppose what we might need to discuss now is how we watch films in isolation or the various ways we might be able to reclaim watching films as a group activity while we're in isolation. Anyway, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to congratulate Dario and Neil on their 100th episode and I'm looking forward to continued listening. Here's to the next 100 Cinematologist podcasts. Thank you, Ren, for taking the time and sending us that that little clip. Really appreciated. Uh, Dario, watching films in isolation versus reclaiming film watching as a group activity. It's the hot question on the <laughs> lips and ears and eyes of every cinephile in yeah. lockdown. Um, and it's actually going to become more and more of a question, I think, going forward. I mean, I don't know how cinemas are going to deal with this for the next however long, six months, year, 18 months. I mean, are people going to, um, are people going to even go if, if social distancing is relaxed? Are, are cinemas going to be able to operate if they can only put so many people in there? So the, the, these are really fundamental questions. And I think just just judging by seeing some, some of the articles and, and social media posts that I've seen, I think people are realizing what they've missed. And I think that there is a, there is a sort of move towards trying to um, trying to manufacture some communal experiences, whether it's Netflix party or using other sort of digital mechanisms, you know, mm-hmm. joining stuff on Zoom, you know, having sort of watch-alongs and this kind of thing. Um, but then, as well, I saw that there was an article. I think it was I think it was this street in Dublin, and this guy had hooked up a, um, a projector and was screening films on the back of the house, and the whole street could watch. And it was just like that's absolutely fantastic, and I think that that. That sense of reclaiming the communal experience is definitely, obviously, um, key to, to to cinema and the cinematic. You know, we've discussed a lot about that. That idea of what is the cinematic and that the, the sense of a shared experience that is enhanced or almost created through the fact that you know 
that there is some kind of sharing going on, even though, you know, you're sat in the cinema and you're on your own and the lights go down and everything like that. I mean, it's one of the intangible things about cinema, I think, is why, why that works. Yeah, you're alone, but you're also together. So I think it's interesting how people are kind of negotiating that in in this current situation. Um, and I, I just think it's great that people are, are still doing it and recognising it. And, and and to be honest, I think maybe, I mean, I've mentioned to you, I'd like to do an episode where we do that somehow using the uh, using the technology going going forward. So uh, yeah, hopefully that will, will uh, we'll sort something out around that. But yes, it, it is a question, actually something I'm, I'm kind of putting, maybe putting something together to write about or maybe put, get a project together on, I think. It's whether, yeah, you, sort of, you know, whether they've realised what they've missed or whether, you know, the people who were who just did it kind of automatically you know as a social thing or as a um as a thing of work you know cinephiles critics whatever um film fans you know they knew they knew its value because they did it but they could, didn't understand it and they couldn't articulate it and this has kind of again created space but also made people really think about what it is that they like about it you know not that i think there's a lot of people who realize actually i'd have to stop going to the cinema and i kind of took it for granted but i, I think there's yeah, equally yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people who did go automatically but took it for granted in the moment and didn't realize what it was that you know and i think one of the reflections that's come out is why people like cinema and movies and and well and television you know and like art really you know um because they're spending so much time and that's their outlet now that's their focus of kind of not mm. thinking about how terrible everything is is to is to engage with art in some form books tv shows film you know and cinema is such like you say such a specific experience in terms of the communal um shared experience that i think people are really thinking about and i, I guess i'm hopeful for cinemas continued relevance as a as an experience but there's just the the huge practicalities of what is that landscape physically going to look like at the end of it because who's going to survive you know who is going to be left and all a lot of those cinemas which we talked about in when james asked us you know will they be there you know because yeah. it's like how can they survive you know multiplex a multiplex will oh, be okay gosh. or something will come in its place but it's the yeah. it's those those other experiences yeah, yeah, that yeah. that are at risk, not through not through apathy anymore, just through the, the the financial and economic reality of not being able to let people through the door, um, and that is you know that is really sad and really tragic and really worrying because you know they're not just movies, <laughs> you know they are they are important, you know there are things that are more important, um, but they are important to yeah. us as human beings. Um, and as communal things, but also as kind of individual experiences on a big screen. I've got a new telly, um, and it's amazing. Like it's <laughs> it's not much bigger, but yeah. the, the picture's so much better. But even then, last night I was watching a film and I was thinking, God, that just the ability to kind of just get into it because of the 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 terms of yeah. the yeah. the technical facility to project and kind of just hit me in a certain way is kind of. And then you, then it's like, God, yeah, like what would this be like in a cinema? where it's just so much more you know and then you do remember actually yeah there's something really really meaningful about it and if that's lost outside of you know the the kind of fast food conveyor belt experience 
that will be really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I hope that I hope that there's a still a landscape when we come out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's one of the things that we'll have to talk about in terms of our live um, episodes that we may be able to do in the future and really think about supporting, you know, small cinemas and and yeah. and you know, offering to put put programs on. You know, around yeah, the definitely something I've thought about yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, kind of wanting to get back out there and do that for those places. Yeah. yeah. Um, great. Yeah, that's definitely a a subject we'll, we're going to be coming back to in future episodes. I have no Indeed. doubt. So we can take a bit of a break now and settle in for our next contribution. Um, our next guest did not really listen to our brief of a couple of minutes he's an experimental filmmaker what do you want yeah (laughs) and now he's now he's a BAFTA winner he'll just uh he can just do whatever he wants um and we'll just happily accept it so uh if you couldn't guess from those cryptic clues uh the next contributor is Mark Jenkin and uh he's got a lot to say about a lot of things so here we go Hello, cinematologists. I'm speaking to you from a homemade voiceover booth in our attic where Mary, my partner, is hopefully going to be continuing the part of her career where she records audiobooks um, remotely. So hopefully this is quite a dead sound you're getting here. Um, so yes, having been asked to say a few things about the cinematologists, um, here goes. I think at this time, especially during isolation, um, I think podcasts reveal their true value and, um, I've been listening to a huge amount of stuff And I think the Cinematologist podcast was one of the first that I really got into. And I remember when Neil and Dario, when they were both working together at, um, I don't know why I'm describing, talking to you, um, talking about you in those terms, actually, because I'm talking to you, really. But I remember when you first came up with the idea, and I think it was when, um, well, it was, Dario, when you were still at um, Falmouth teaching. And the early discussions were about it being a... Uh, radio show which was very exciting Um, but then for whatever reason I don't know exactly the ins and outs of it but it became a podcast and I think it's become a real essential podcast and at the beginning I suppose for me there was a a bit of a novelty value to it because I knew both the people who were hosting it but I think it then certainly for me became an essential um an essential podcast because it it kind of fills the gap, bridges that gap between the the film viewer, consumer, um, and sort of the film academia that I dip a toe into, and it really does something that no other podcast really does. You have um, much more mainstream podcasts. Um, that serve a certain purpose, but the, but the cinematologists have always been there for sort of away from what's going on, um, sort of contemporary trends. It's more of a sort of 
um, more of a objective view of um, no, inc- incredibly subjective, but I, I, I suppose not not caught up too much into the in the day to day film world, not reviewing um, weekly releases and that kind of thing. Um, so more timeless in that sense, and um, and incredibly random. So no real um, pattern, no idea what's going to come next, no idea what view, what um, who the next guest is going to be. Um, and really no no, no real um, sense of where where it's going thematically which is sounds like a criticism but actually that's 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 really great because you're never quite sure what you're going to get and some some things will be familiar to me and some things will be great unknowns which um you know then it starts serving as as a as a podcast that introduced me to things that otherwise I wouldn't have known about so i'm very grateful that the Cinematologist podcast exists. Very grateful for your hard work, Neil and Dario. Um, it's a brilliant podcast, and more importantly, it's an essential podcast. Now, the second bit um, of what you asked me to think about, um, you know, what what would be a good discussion to have? And here goes. So recently I've been thinking a lot about luck and a lot about um, luck when it comes to timing. So my my film Bait, um, which, is, which has become, um, you know, a, a critical and commercial success in the, you know, um, in the context of British independent film... I often wonder why, and I think a lot of it comes down to, or a certain amount of that success is due to good timing, and I've spoken about this before, but it, it all goes back to, to Berlin last year when um, when we got a first look review from Peter Bradshaw at the, at the Berlin Arle, and everything really started from that good review, and I think the reason he gave that good review or partly why he gave that good review was because he very publicly uh said that that year's Berlinale was weak certainly the first few days and along came this film that he knew nothing about which was bait and really took him by surprise and um I think maybe if the beginning of the Berlinale had been stronger in in his eyes then maybe that review wouldn't have been written he might not have seen the film he might not have certainly might not have been so vocal about his support for it and we wouldn't have got that momentum going which has really carried the film ever since now it's not to say that um it isn't a great film or anything you know and and other people's reviews are incredibly important you know i, I would i would cite your support of the film um also um mark kermode's very vocal and public support of the film but it does go back to that Berlin Arle where uh, I do think we were a little bit lucky with the timing fast forward to now and it's really heartbreaking to read a lot of um, stories of filmmakers who would who'd worked uh, on their movies to get them finished and were just about to premiere them i know of a, a few people who are going to have world premieres at south by southwest for example who just when it got pulled understandably that moment for them just disappears 
and uh, it's incredibly bad luck. And fingers crossed, they get those films, get that, that that moment, and they get their exposure, and people get to see them maybe on in this new world of of streaming uh, films online. Um, first, uh, you know, hopefully they do they do get that that limelight and they do get a fighting chance to reach an audience but it does make me very thankful for the timing of uh of bait and i'm just about to well i was just about to start shooting a a new film um and we've had to push it back a year which which is pretty heartbreaking but but again we've kind of we kind of um benefited from good timing again because the the finance is effectively in place for the film um but we hadn't started spending any money or shooting so for us the film being um being mothballed at this moment it, the timing couldn't have really been better so again it's it, it's just really gr- thankful for our luck with regard to timing and no films that were shooting and only a few days away from rapping that got shut down and that must be and I don't think anybody um anybody unless you're Paul Schrader I don't think anybody kind of questions that but it must be so difficult to deal with if you're just about to finish shooting and and the world shuts down how do you pick that up again how do you get going with that momentum especially if the the whole world's changed by the time you get back to making a film um and also people who were beginning to structure structure deals to get films into production that where nothing had been signed on the dotted line and then the world shut down you know what happens to those projects those people who were so far through development and were just about to get green lit um so my question really um is to do with that my question for the cinematologist and um the other day i was asked by the cleveland uh, clevedon uh curzon cinema to um do a little thing for them about key cinematic experiences and i thought about what my key cin- cinematic experiences were and one thing that sprung to mind was um was another was was to do with timing and a, and a twist of fate um what i what i said to them that a key cinematic moment for me was um when i was 10 i went to cinema with my dad um he he wanted to take me to see crocodile dundee um and we went to the cinema the local cinema and it was a 15 i think it was 1985 1986 i was about 10 and it and it was a 15 so they wouldn't let me in to see crocodile dundee and me and my dad were both completely gutted by this but um, on screen two, there was a film that was a PG, and so because we'd gone all the way to the cinema, we went into the the other screen and watched that film, and it was the Mission, Roland Joffe's The Mission, uh, which I knew nothing about. My dad didn't know anything about it either, and um, amidst the disappointment of not getting to see Crocodile Dundee, we sat and watched The Mission. And it completely blew me away. It, I didn't know anything about it. It was probably the first time I'd ever been to see a film that I didn't know anything about. Um, and it really moved me. And it traumatised me. Um, 
I think it probably even bored me at times. Um, it made me angry. Um, it made me feel all of these things that I probably hadn't felt in a cinema before. And when we left at the end um, and drove home, it just kept playing. The film kept playing. And, and there's images from that film that still stick with me now. And I often wonder what would have happened if we'd been allowed to go in and see Crocodile Dundee, whether in a parallel universe there is a version of me who did get to see Crocodile Dundee when I was 10. And I wonder whether that version of me is a filmmaker or doing something completely different. So I think my question um, for you guys, cinematologists, is what are those defining moments for you in, uh, in your cinema watching, your film watching life? Um, that all come down to chance, timing, fate, whatever it is that meant that you've ended up where you are now. And if those events didn't happen, um, do you think you would have still got here? Would you still be hosting this this brilliant and essential podcast? Right on. Stay safe. See you soon. Bye. So thanks so much, Mark, for that contribution. Um, we're only teasing you. We'll have you on, you know, as many as many minutes as you like. Um, and you know we really appreciate the continued support and you know someone who was there at the start as well um, and yeah it's just great to have somebody like that who's championing the podcast in the way that he does you know what I mean seeing it and appreciating it appreciating what we've what we've tried to do um, I found this his question though on sort of the the films that influenced you by luck or chance or fate or cinematic experiences that had that attached to to them and then went on to influence you. I found that a really difficult one. I don't know whether I can honestly say that there was a sort of sliding doors moment, but you've you've picked a few, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a few there. I did, uh, first of all, just want to kind of pick up on his, the way he was talking about luck. And yeah. because I've always had a problem with the idea of luck, the way it's used. And I think the way that Mark's using it there in terms of good luck, like... I don't think there's anything lucky about bait. I think he's very fortunate. I think I think he's got good yeah. fortune. And I, what I mean by that is I think that, you know, for me, when people say you're lucky, it's like, yeah, there are lucky people, people who are just handed things, you know, yeah. and with no with no conception or work or anything like that. And, and, and good things happen to people all the time that, that, you know, where there's no element of agency. And I think that, for me, the, there's fortune, you know, to bait in the sense that he worked damn hard and he's worked hard for a long time. And also the film has to be good, you know. And I think that's the thing is like he, Bradshaw could easily have watched it and thought it was terrible. Festivals mm. are full of terrible films, you know, um, or just average films, just films that are just like, yeah, you know, politically just particularly politically programmed films because of someone knows someone else like the film has to be good and it has to work in that in and it, he was fortunate that you know for whatever reason Bradshaw watched it and 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 but he has to like it and it has to be good and I think that you know and this kind of goes into a lot of some of those films I think that there's there's bad luck and at the moment I think you know it's really interesting him talking about filmmakers that couldn't that aren't going to be able to release their films that's bad luck you know that is out of their hands they've done everything that they could to be in a position to do it and they've not been able to they've not been able to 
have that opportunity and that bad luck is taken out of their hands. But but I think that there is a difference between good luck and good fortune. Um, and I think Mark, you know, has worked so hard. And I think that a lot of a lot of filmmakers have worked hard. And that you know he deserves he deserves that you know um, because it's not luck. You know, it is talent and it is reflection mm. and it is persistence and it is you know it is hard work. Um, and it's just so great that it's been rewarded um, in so many different ways because he, he absolutely deserves it. And that's why I kind of thought about the films that, you know, have kind of shifted my direction. A lot of them have come from putting myself in a position to um, to do that rather than just like lucky kind of. I, I can't remember a lot of the films that I just sort of switched on that really had a huge impact. You know, there's always some yeah, kind yeah. of drive to do something. But but there have been a lot of surprises Um it was interesting reading about the hen in this month's sight and sound and remembering seeing that video cover in the video shop where I would just rent as much as I could all the time and seeing that cover when it first came out and thinking, what is that? You know, um, and being a, you know, 18 year old kid in Luton looking at those faces and seeing those kind of faces every day, but never seeing them on a video cover and never seeing them in a video cover mm. in Luton and just being like, I need to see this film and absolutely being blown away by it and thinking this is an, ex- this is, that was genuinely life-changing you know in the days where you would go in and pick something based on its artwork (laughs) on a shelf which again is something that doesn't really happen that was a huge one another vhs experiences were seeing raising arizona and um just thinking like this feels strange like i get what it i get it but and i liked it but i didn't know why and then kind of staying with me and then seeing the Hudsucker proxy video cover and thinking that's weird and because I knew the guy in the video shop I was like well, what's this and he was like oh those guys have made some films before um, Raising Arizona Blood Simple and I was like oh Raising Arizona I've seen that and then linking that you know it wasn't just Spielberg and Scorsese who made films in the plural that there were other people mm. and, and thinking well that, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. seeing Raising Arizona I'll try this and just loving Hudsucker proxy and that formulating understanding through those ways um mean streets was another one where i programmed a night of scorsese movies um and needed something to fill it i had goodfellas and taxi driver and i needed something else so like a marathon so i picked mean streets and i'd never seen it and that film Mm. genuinely changed my life um i remember seeing the conformist at university where i was kind of in that position of i'm here to learn show me stuff i've not seen before that's why i'm here um but absolutely just kind of having my, my axis shifted. Uh, but also understanding I've, I've seen that somewhere else. Where have I seen that? And I'm realising, which is what I worked through in, in an essay, that The Godfather Part Two and how closely it, 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 it resembles and takes from The Conformist and Coppola's kind of yeah. re, reimagining of The Conformist and, and that. And then other things which were genuinely lucky but kind of nice was last summer in Prague I had an afternoon... You know, that kind of classic, I've checked out, I've done my last meeting, my taxi to the airport later, what what can I do? I'll go to the movies and seeing three identical strangers in this documentary in this lovely, you know, kind of 1930s Prague picture palace. And just what a great, great documentary. What a fabulous, fabulous film. And just the the curiosity of kind of thinking, okay, well, I've got a few hours to kill. I'll go and watch a movie. I kind of heard of that. I wonder what that's like and just mm. being you know immersed and enmeshed yeah. in 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 that experience and just yeah 
so it was a really interesting thing to think about uh, in terms of what drives me to watch certain things and when are the moments where what has put me in the position to see those things, you know, rather than just I go to the cinema every week. What do I see? But those things that have shifted my brain and how did they come about? and Who was I at that time and what was I interested in doing and seeing? That was really valuable. So I appreciate being able to do that. Yeah. Um in, yeah, I think you broadening it, broadening out the question has, has helped a little bit. And I suppose, yeah, just going back to my childhood, I remember when we first got a VCR player, and that was just like a seminal moment because it was that then that opportunity to take control over your own viewing a little bit more. And it's funny mm-hmm. now, like so, you know, we're talking about the idea of you know mobility and temporality in podcasting, and everybody's got autonomy over the way and how and where and when of, of what they watch. But just like having this metal box that played movies and recorded movies, that was the other thing. It was like, you know, something was on late at night and you could you could record it and then watch it later. And that's where, mm. you know, I started having my VHS collection with the little stickers on, you know, your Memorex tapes and sort of k- keeping hold of... Uh, I, remember, I remember seeing THX 1138 on Movie Drone and just like, oh my God, what is what is that? And, you know, this is later on. It's, it, it's funny, actually. I think I remember with the VHS player i was probably 14 when an illicit copy of terminator went around the school and i just remember getting hold of this copy of something that none of us were supposed to watch you know what i mean and like literally sort of shaking as it went in the as it went in the the vcr player to play it and i you know i had a couple of mates around and we were just like curtains closed and we're recreating the cinematic experience you know it's just hilarious but yeah i remember that and then I remember when a, f- a friend of mine, I mean, I, I had, again, like I said, I had quite a mainstream upbringing. So I, I didn't really get into sort of what you call non-mainstream or art house or cult type filmmaking till later on. And I remember a, a friend of mine sort of said, oh, I want to watch this film, The Breakfast Club. And I, I kind of like, well, what's that? Then, oh, it's these kids in school, you know what I mean? And they're in detention. I was like, what the fuck do you want to watch that for? And I said, oh, come on, let's watch it. And I just remember like from, from the, it's probably the first time where I'd seen a film and thinking that this this film takes young people's feelings seriously. And suddenly I was kind of like, you know, oh, that's a... I didn't see... I can't remember seeing that before. Yeah, film was, was just action and violence and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, and then in, in terms of university, that, that, that moment of, oh, I'm here to learn was probably when I saw um, Piero LeFou for the first time and just kind of watching it and was like, what is this? And coming out thinking that like that I mean I don't want to sort of hype you know give a load of hypeable but it's almost kind of like the world looks slightly different now because this I've seen it through this sort of lens which was really kind of weird and interesting and didn't make sense you know to me at the time yeah, yeah. maybe still doesn't now to a certain degree but yeah just those sort of moments I, I remember but but it's funny that that question of is there a moment which if you didn't if you didn't land on that path your life would have been very different and to be honest with you you know and, and again it sort of it does relate to what's going on now a little bit in terms of work and stuff it was getting my first full-time job at Falmouth University and mm. and because what happened was I went for the interview and then our colleague or former colleague Sarah got the job first but then apparently the numbers went up so much that they needed a second person I got a after having got a call saying I didn't get the job, like two weeks later, I got a call saying I did get the job, and that roller coaster of emotions. I just remember when, as soon as I was, I got the contract and signed it, it was offered. I, I went for a walk around Leeds, you know what I mean, thinking, 
I had to sort of let it settle in my brain about my life had now changed and the, the PhD and the thing that I'd been doing for, what was it, seven years had led to this point. And, and like when I see people on, on, you know, especially now the 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 position that precarious work is in, in academia, I know precarious work is uh, applies to all situations, but I, I have a particular affinity for those people do, doing part-time teaching and doing PhDs because I know what it's like to be there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It is interesting to think about those moments, isn't it? I think it's it's important, and you know, I had to broaden out the question because I grew up in a place where the cinema offering was so mainstream, and you know, I saw a load of films at the cinema and loved loads of them. I remember seeing Jurassic Park and Toy Story, and just thinking these are great movies, but nothing that really spoke to me in a way that suggested what I was going to do, you know, um, until I saw Mean Streets, where I was like, this is, you know, that was at college, and that was it. That was like, you know, and. And then I think I read Personal Journey through movies with Scorsese and and then got into film noir through that. And I had this, talk about VHS, I had a VHS long play. You remember your long play? Yeah, yeah. So it was like eight hours or whatever it was. Eight hours, yeah, yeah. Yeah, rather than four hours. And on this I had The Killing, Double Indemnity, Build My Gallows High and Touch of Evil, you know. And and I've I've still got the VHS, I've got it in the archive, just like... That all these movies on one VHS in terrible quality, but it meant so much to me. And seeing Rebel Without a Cause, and then there was a Nicholas Ray season on, and putting, yeah, in a lonely place, I think bigger than life, and Rebel Without a Cause on a big, and just like that was that was so important that that that, that those films were on TV mm. and that we had VHS, you know, and that it came from so many different places. And, and Mean Streets was a moment where it was like I started to I started to take it seriously but also think actually i think i want to do more than watch this stuff now you know like there's something else and it it's that's kind of shifted in many directions as a filmmaker and as a critic um and as an academic in terms of how i actually engage with that stuff but i knew then that yeah this is these are the kind of experiences i want i want to make them i want to have them i want to just feel completely blown away and also connected to something and again like an addict that's the high that i'm constantly searching yeah, yeah, yeah. for uh, as we go through very good very good but the thing I, we are both really waiting for though neil is obviously mark jenkin rebooting crocodile dundee this is just the cinematic event uh, you know that we are the world is waiting for i am so excited you know i know he's going to make this kind of you know obscure 70s horror movie next but i'm pretty sure that down the line uh, and i'd say bring back paul hogan as well uh, oh really yeah. and maybe have like maybe have um uh, Ed Rowe played Martin in Bait as a kind of younger, you know, kind of like <laughs> orphaned, orphaned yeah. son of, a, or like, you know, kind of like has to reconnect with his dad played by Paul Hogan and, and take yeah. on the mantle of Crocodile Dundee. I can, I right. can see it happening. I thought, I, I thought Jackman would be in the running, you know. Well, you know, I think Mark's <laughs> less obvious. That's the thing. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, if true. he's anything. So, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I can't wait for, can't wait for Blockbuster Jenkin. Um down the line we've got one more uh main one um which is we've kind of left it to the end because it's the question in it is kind of suggestive of of what's next really so this is uh dr kingsley marshall who uh is my colleague and was our colleague uh, at falmouth and someone who has done a lot for the podcast in terms of supporting it from day one giving it a space giving us time kind of encouraging us to do it and then kind of supporting trips out and, and, and various things from, from, you know, from day one. So he's a real, real been a real champion of the podcast. Yeah, and, I uh, mean, yeah, sorry, I just want to add to that. Yeah, I think actually it, when it comes to sort of 
administratively, structurally in a university. I think he's probably the one person that, that even when we kind of didn't know what it was, he was like, yeah, go do it. And then when it became something, he was like, oh yeah, I know what it is. Then, you know, go do it more kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, this is his uh, contribution to our 100th episode. And uh, yeah, we'll be back to answer or try and answer his big question. So the call for this contribution to the 100th episode of The Cinematologist came out on the 11th of March and um, it caused me to reflect a little bit on, on the five years between um, the launch of the podcast and that first um, Repo Man episode and all the things that uh, you learnt about uh, the voice and podcasting, uh, cinema, critics, um, reception of uh, the, the audiences that you've had for the screenings and um, filmmakers themselves talking about their work and then the, the, your mediations um, on those filmmakers' conversations and all those many interviews you've done. But my question relates really to um, the difference between where we were in the UK on the 11th of March when you sent the call out and where we are now in kind of um, mid to late April when I'm recording this which is cinema, it feels, may change fundamentally post-coronavirus. We're, we're in a moment where cinemas around the world are, are closed. Film and TV production is, is shut down globally. Um, so I work in a film school and wondering how the students will respond to this, both in their work and in their future careers and things. So I, my question really is for Neil and Dario, if you project forward in five years and another 100 episodes and we get to episode uh, 200 in 2025 what will the impact of coronavirus be on cinema how it's distributed how it's made and the kind of stories that we tell and how audiences receive it um congratulations on the centenary it's astonishing i remember the first conversations about the podcast and um it gives me great joy um to understand how you've built an audience um an astonishing um, range of filmmakers and critics and contributors and um, fans of uh, movies uh, contributing is something that's a, a curated selection of amazing movie set of movies to watch um, but also a consideration of who we are and what cultural production does to us um, as, as members of a, a global audience and I think that's a, a, a great achievement you should pat yourselves on the back what does it what does it look like I mean, we just touched on it before about, you know, the cinema going. It's yeah. it, it really is up in the air. I mean, I'm just writing a, a mm. blog right now on... I mean, this is... Sorry, the, the newsletter entry is really a sort of collection of these almost stream of consciousness thoughts or questions more than anything else about what happens, what happens now. I mean, it, it, and it cuts across so many things because it's like, you know, I'm back at work next week and there's a big management meeting about what's going to happen in September. But it's not just September. So, you know, we're talking about how are we going to teach practice remotely if we're still in social isolation, which I'm absolutely sure we're still going to be. Um, but then if there's no films being made, really, you know, in the next two years, then that's going to have a massive effect on on what we consider the film industry to be. And in some ways, there's kind of an interesting, there maybe is an interesting 
a moment where the playing field is leveled. And again, I don't want to sort of do down and be flippant about that. I understand that like so many people have lost work and lost jobs. It's not a good thing. But on the other hand, you know, there may be a sort of a, a resetting. I mean, and just to be slightly flippant for a second, do is is a time period without any more major blockbusters being made <laughs> a good thing, an opportunity for a little bit more of a sort of look at a look at the 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 craft of filmmaking in in a sort of more pared down minimalistic sense that which, which might in the vein of 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 Mark Jenkin for example provoke or inspire a new wave of creativity that's that's the only sort of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of what's happening you know in terms of us all being locked down in this way yeah and i think that i think that i'd go a bit further than that and think and i think that there's a load of people who will be making content in a in a in a world that has to be administered very differently so while yeah we might not have any blockbusters on the scale of you know a bond or a, an avengers for a while those places are still going to want to make content and i just think that that content through necessity might look much closer to what indie cinema or kind of cinema in different global contexts has looked like for decades you know yes, yes. because you can't have as many people make it so fewer locations fewer cast you know more kind of pared down aesthetics more pared down crew you know and i think is an opportunity because i think a lot of people around the world that's how they've made films for decades and how they make films in their whole career um it's going to be a shock at the top of the um the top of the industry when you, you can't have a hundred people on a crew yeah. you know Every, um, everyone is Jaffa Panahi now yeah and I did that I, I was <laughs> no, thinking no about that who, who would I show well I'd show Cassavetes and I'd show Barbara Hammer and I'd show yeah Jaffa Panahi and I'd show Andrew Cotting you know um, yeah. and I'd show Nolan's first film following you know um, and then going back to La Haine, you know Cassavetes talking about how he put the budget together for La Haine and um you know, working with his line producer, and it's like, well, we've we've wasted all of our money in the first half. So the second half is essentially going to be me and six people, with handheld and no permits, running around Paris shooting this stuff. And that's an electric piece of cinema. That second half, yeah. where the, the guys go to Paris. You know, that's there's so many examples of people using restrictions, limitations um, as creative opportunities. And I, 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 that's what I'm excited about and hopeful for. I'm realistic to know that. It, yeah, it's unlikely in in a sense, but I think it would be interesting if if there was a narrowing of that gap between an independent aesthetic and a kind of low budget punk aesthetic and a and what the industry is doing at the top. Because I think that over time, you would just th- you would just kind of even if you increased it five ten percent in terms of the types of films people watched, that's got a huge impact for indie cinema and art house cinema moving forward in the next 10, 15, 20 years if it's possible. I, 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 that's my hope naive as it may mm. be but i and and i think that as educators we can and i sort of talked to you about this last week you know i think that there is a body of work that we can show which is the stuff we show now but it's i think students are going to feel closer to it because they know that's the reality of what they can make <laughs> you know mm. i think often what they have to make in a film course context is they you know i have to do this because i can only have four people in my crew and I can only use this many actors but it's like, yeah, that's the same for everybody. That's what, yeah. you know, that's what Paula Thomas Anderson's going to be doing. That's what Tarantino's going to be doing. That's what, yeah. 
Catherine Bigelow's going to be doing because that's what everyone's doing because that's yeah. the world now. Um, yeah, 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 that yeah. interests me in terms of what that looks like. Um, so I don't want to sort of be too negative because I think it's it's going to be such a yeah. disaster for so many filmmakers yeah. and film companies and distributors that we know. So what, what what's the alternative to that? And hopefully it's yeah. it's something we haven't quite thought of yet. Yeah. yeah, and I think also alongside that, there's going to have to be a... Um, a sort of marrying up of the of the filmmaking practices and aesthetics and content and the experiences that people are having and that can be on a micro level so what does it mean to to be isolated what does it mean to uh live a life that's kind of like where where being online or being you know being remote is has to be sort of dealt with and and utilized and and un- underpin the way that you deal with things like work and your family and all of those kinds of things and how can that how can that be done in this context um and also i mean we've talked a little bit about this elsewhere and it's another thing i'm interested in writing out that hopefully disrupting the 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 sort of ingrained um biases we have about what is quality and what isn't Mm. i think that's really important so that sense of you know when when the dogma guys came along and you know in the sort of 90s and that idea of shooting in digital video the the snobbery and the kind of like this isn't real cinema that was attached to that, you know, and we, we've had that kind of, you know, we've gone through a bit of that when people have started shooting on iPhones and this kind of stuff. Mm. And now I think, you know, that everybody has to kind of turn around and sort of say, okay, so, so how can we be creative using all of that? And not yeah. then, then on the, one of the good things, hopefully we're on the back end, you can't kind of like say, well, you know, it wasn't shot on an, on a, an Alexa two or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's like, no, no, this is, this is great great work yeah. and and all sort of undermining that sense of that sense of snobbery i think is yeah. really it would would be a nice thing to happen yeah absolutely um agreed let's let's hope that's how it is absolutely um, but we don't know this is the thing well we don't know we we're but we're doing what we said before we don't yeah, yeah. you know we're just speculating yeah, this is yeah. our our yeah. take on it and and we've been very fortunate to be able to think about it because people have asked us yeah, yeah you know yeah. and we've 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 yeah. we've created a space where people want to have that conversation mm. and want us to be part of it that that's that's yeah. really great and but, I what, think, but sorry but what i meant by that was that, like anybody who thinks they do know doesn't oh god yeah that's yeah. what i meant by that yeah, yeah. don't, don't think, trust yeah. anybody who says yeah they know <laughs> um and i think that that chimes as well with terms of the future of the podcast is we don't really know what the future of the podcast is going to be yeah not just in a kind of post-COVID world, but just in a sense of we've never really known, and we've 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 shaped it as as best as we've gone along. It's been five years. It feels very good. Feels like we're doing good work that we are enjoying and that has a value. Um, but there's going to be so many factors that that kind of change that um, that we don't really know about uh, for our lives mm-hmm. as as people um, in the field of academia that we work in, which currently we're very fortunate to have secure jobs, but. 18 months of lockdown could change that. Um, You just don't know. So kind of this has been really nice because it's a chance to enjoy it in the moment, you know, this kind of reflection and look back and appreciate what we've done uh, before we have to embrace the uncertainty um, and hopefully adventure of of what's next. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's one thing sort of keeping that sense of we don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) that's been the 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 underlying principle that you know we like to have that sense of uh ooh what is to come but 
again, that could even change again now. Are we going to start talking about things that are sort of wider than than cinema? You know what I mean? Are we going to um, be a little bit more targeted in, in what we support? That kind of thing. There's all interesting questions. Are we going to try to look to engage in, in using more uh, digitally available technology to create different types of episodes? I think all of those are on the agenda or on the table and we will see clearly. And hopefully they'll still retain the same kind of inherent experience that, that people have gravitated towards over the last five years. Mm. You know, that we'll, whatever we're doing and whatever form it takes, we're still going to be approaching it from the same position uh, with the same goals of kind of exploring and learning and, and kind of sharing the experience with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've got just one more comment to come, but I just wanted to say, Neil, thanks very much for the company. It's been great. It's been formative of my last five years, absolutely, and the sort of glue and anchoring point of uh, my interest in cinema and culture and life, really. Yeah, I feel the same. And uh, it, it really does sit at the centre of my my kind of creative uh, academic life. You know, it, it really is... Yeah, so meaningful in terms of our friendship and just kind of the opportunity to do it um, and to have and to have it find a space which has which has a value has been has been really rewarding. So, yeah, um, this last kind of comment is a small one, um, and it should it should provide evidence of 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 how at least on the day to day the podcast is seen in my in my house. Um, so this is uh, this is what my daughter Tessa thinks I do um, uh, when I'm doing my work. No, I do an important work called a podcast, and you must get out and go down there and be sad. Thank you to Tessa for uh, for um, telling me exactly how much time I must do I must spend talking about podcasting. That she now knows that it's very important work, um, and uh, that I just do it all the time. So it's not just me saying I do it all the time. I clearly must do it because um, she's picked up on it. Um, so yeah, that that kind of wraps us up really for episode one hundred. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you, Dario, about all of this stuff and learn new things about you, and kind of be reminded of certain things, experiences that we've shared and on the podcast and around it. Um, yeah, this has been a really nice time. Yep, absolutely. And and thanks to everyone who's contributed to, to this particular episode. Thanks to everyone who has listened. Um, please continue to get in touch on social media. We are on Twitter, of course, Facebook. Um, the email is cinematologists at gmail.com. We're always up, and especially now more than ever, to, to listen to suggestions about what to talk about. I mean, we have got interviews coming up, um, which will go out next. But again, just... I mean, sometimes we haven't done one for a while where somebody suggested a film and, and we just talk about it. That would that would be nice to do. And that future. might be a good way of talking about something that we can do that 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 uh, watching online together and yes. recording things. So if you've got something you want us to talk about, then definitely get into it. Absolutely. So that has been it. That's 100 episodes. That's five years. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>